Hello and welcome to the official first podcast, or the first episode of the podcast, What Are You Doing? For my first episode, I'm absolutely honored to welcome a very special man with many accolades to his name, Mr. James Haley. He is a CG Senior Fellow and currently working as Special Advisor of Regulatory Affairs at Scotiabank. He was the former Executive Director for the Canadian-led constituency at the International Monetary Fund in Washington, D.C., and served as Canada's Executive Director to the Inter-American Development Bank. Prior to this appointment, he held a number of senior positions in the Canadian Treasury Department of Finance, most recently as the General Director of the Economic and Fiscal Policy Branch. And as General Director of the International Trade and Finance Branch, he served as co-chair of the G20 Working Group on Rebalancing the Global Economy and represented Canada in numerous international working groups. He is a research director of the International Department of the Bank of Canada, a senior economist in the Research and European Departments of the IMF. He has lectured on macroeconomics, international finance, and international financial institutions at the McCourt School of Public Policy in Georgetown University and the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University. His published work focuses on international financial issues, the IMF, and sovereign debt restructuring. He also has a very interesting blog. However, I am most proud and impressed that he is a wonderful father to myself and three sisters and an excellent role model. So, Dad, what are you doing? (laughs) (laughs) Well, as you mentioned in the introduction, I'm currently a special advisor to Scotiabank in Toronto. So that really is a role that uh, is intended, I think, to look look at the evolving landscape of regulation, uh, bank regulation in Canada and the U.S. so that the bank can better understand how the regulatory frameworks under which it operates are changing uh, and uh, position it uh, better in the marketplace. What position held the most important in your, I don't know, journey to, to where you are right now? Well, it's hard to say because I've I've been really, uh, I think, mean, truly blessed in, in having a, having had a very, very interesting career uh, over 30, 30 plus years in the Canadian public service. Um, and so early on in my career, I was fortunate to, or unfortunate, I guess, on your depending on your perspective, of being involved in um, some of the follow-up to uh, bank failures that Canada had in the in the early mid 1980s uh, and that really was a fascinating experience working uh, at the time with very senior uh, officials and, and ministers on on a whole range of issues that those bank failures and related financial problems in the in uh, of other financial institutions at the time uh, created now, clearly, I was a very junior uh, economist in the Canadian Finance Department, so it wasn't as though I was directing policy, but I, I was very fortunate uh, to have served as uh, the departmental secretary to uh, uh, Minister Roy McLaren, blue ribbon panel on financial issues at the time, and, and that was really a really interesting issue. Beyond that, um, most of my most of my career was involved in international financial economics, international financial cooperation. Um, you know, particularly Canada's role in the G7, and then uh, 
the G20 once um, once that was established and, and running, but also Canada's relationships with the international financial institutions, the IMF, the World Bank, uh, and the various regional development banks. And I think really that, you know, I think has shaped my, my view of not just uh, global economics, but also kind of the the global power structures and Canada's place in the world. And I think Canada has uh, a very important role to play. We're, we're not uh, the largest country by any means, but we can and have been in the past uh, enormously influential in, in shaping uh, policies internationally. When did you first develop an interest in economics and what kind of pathway did you take in maybe school or what led you to end up in that junior economist role? Well, I did start off to be an economist. I, I started off um, thinking that I would uh, study history, and at the back of my mind, I, I probably thought that being a history don at Oxford or Cambridge would be, uh, would be very interesting. Um, but I, I entered university in the uh, kind of mid-1970s, uh, and, you know, you're too young to remember, or you, you weren't around. <laughs> uh, but, uh, and and this, is, this may be so far back that you probably have never studied it in school yourself, but in the, in, in the 1970s, uh, you know, it was a very, um, uh, very uncertain period. Um, there was uh, major international financial and economic uh, disruptions. There was, uh, uh, you know, a serious oil embargo, which led to... Uh, very high inflation, and and so there was a sense, I think, you know, that you know the the economy uh, was entering a new a new phase, a new era, but it was also, as I say, a period of enormous uncertainty, and there was a you know a fairly significant recession, not nearly as bad as the uh, the great global financial crisis a decade ago, uh, but there was a serious recession, and. I began wondering and thinking uh, about my career and um, you know where you know whether a, an undergraduate degree in history or indeed were I to pursue graduate studies, whether I would get a job. I was also enrolled in economics uh, in my first year of university. I took a very you know I took a fairly uh, diverse uh, set of courses, so I had history and economics and English, uh, I think psychology uh, and undergraduate law. Uh, and I and I liked economics. It, it liked me, perhaps is a better way of saying it. Just something just clicked. And while I have never been in a particularly strong, mathematically inclined economist, uh, the intuition, the underlying intuition of economics uh, just came very naturally to me, and uh, I, I, I thought that this was something, this subject was something that could help me better understand the big changes that were occurring in the global economy, and at the same time might help in terms of job prospects. So I, at, in, in the second year of, of university, I, you know, I basically said uh, to myself that I would pursue economics as, as certainly as undergraduate studies. Uh, and then uh, see what see what came up. So you've had the opportunity to lecture and kind of have that professor role at universities. Do you notice 
is there a shift between when you were an, a student in university and the students nowadays, or what do you have any advice or something for people who are just breaking into this field? Uh, you're setting me up, Mikhail. <laughs> 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 uh, I mean, I do see I do see a big change in in the way that uh, I think students um, approach their studies. Uh, certainly, from the way that I uh, approached uh, my undergraduate degree, and and that may you know maybe because st students now are different, or maybe I was you know slightly uh, different then. I don't know. I get a sense from from students today that there's far more emphasis on. Uh, the accreditation or you know getting getting their students seemed motiv motivated more today by getting high grades so that they can distinguish themselves as opposed to getting high high grades because they really enjoy the, the subject internal internal reward kind of thing exactly exactly now mm -hmm. uh, I have no I don't claim to have any great insight or indeed whether my own views are just reflect my own biases but I mean that that mm -hmm. certainly strikes me in terms of advice uh, for someone thinking about economics or considering pursuing economics, I think you know it's we've gone through, as I mentioned, you know the great global financial crisis. Mm -hmm. That's something I want to touch on yeah. later too. Well, and I would say that you know that when we get into that, that's yeah. you know I think that really kind of uh, should should cause people to, to think about economics um, and and the way that. Uh, it is applied to policy uh, as opposed to uh, how economics advances as a, as a field, as a, as a social science, you know, the theoretical developments. Uh, do you find that, is there an interest in economics, a general consensus? Like, is there always a, a good influx of people in entering the field? Uh, I think, um, I think, you know, the, there, there are always uh, intellectual debates, you know, in, in, in schools of thought in, in any subject. You know, I don't think economics is unique in that respect. Certainly when I was uh, an undergraduate and, and getting into graduate school, you know, the, the, the key intellectual divide was between Keynesians, right. uh, that is to say people who use the, the economic analysis developed and, and uh, popularized by John Maynard Keynes, versus kind of the monetary uh, Friedmanites, the followers of Milton Friedman. And that was, that was the big intellectual debate in my undergraduate years. By the time I got to grad school, there was a new school, the, the real business cycle school, developed largely by Robert Lucas and, and others. Um, and that was then the, the challenge to the, the existing uh, orthodoxy, use that term. It's interesting. I mean, I think there's debates, schools of thought, um, and it's slightly different because today it is more in terms of methodological approaches as opposed to you know, theoretical underpinnings that, that differ. Uh, and today you could say it is kind of uh, you know, economists who use dynamic general equilibrium models versus more uh, pragmatic economists that are looking at um, you know, a range of models, typically less empirical based models perhaps, to understand the effects of policy on the economy and the way that the economy works. So there are still uh, intellectual debates, uh, and I think you know, one of the interesting things about the, uh, the global financial crisis was that it led people to reevaluate 
where things stood in terms of the use of these fairly sophisticated, I mean, at least they, they had the outward appearances of an enormous sophistication of uh, dynamic stochastic general equilibrium models. And I think a lot of people, you know, today, or more people today, uh, kind of recognize that these models can be useful, but they aren't the truth. They don't, they don't define the economy. They don't, you know, and moreover, they are arguably far less useful to describe the impact of policies on the economy. So I think greater reluctance to, to make bold policy prescriptions based on today. You've mentioned or you've referenced the global financial crisis a few times now, um, and you're referring back to 2008. Do you think that event, I guess, has played the most significant role or had the greatest impact on your career? Are there other global international events that have made you really, I don't know, re reassess things? Well, I think for any economist um, that was working in government or uh, in one of the, you know, the international financial institutions or, say, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development Parents, uh, you know, the, the global financial crisis, uh, you know, clearly was a seminal event. I mean, it was um, uh, an enormous shock. Uh, you know, it's, it's not the kind of thing that happens uh, every year, every decade. The last time the, uh, the United States economy and economies of Western Europe and, and, the, and so on experienced something similar was in the 1930s, uh, you know, the Great when Depression. the Great Depression. Yeah. So it was clearly, uh, you know, this uh, an enormous shock, and I think anybody certainly working in policy, on policy, uh, or for policy-based uh, institutions, uh, you know, it was it was uh, a defining moment for sure. Have you had any mentors or anyone who's really taken you under their wings during your time, either in the public servant uh, service uh, at university? or even as you've advanced, is there someone you really, or admire, or look to for advice, or value yes. their opinion? I, I, as I say, I've been very, very fortunate, um, you know, in terms of my career, both, both because I've had the opportunity to work on a number of really interesting issues, and, you know, I've, I've, very, I've been fortunate because I've, I've had a sense of uh, accomplishment that I've contributed and I've been fortunate because I've worked with some very good uh, people. Um, David Dodge, uh, who was uh, at the time uh, an associate deputy minister of finance, responsible for international uh, relationships, G7, the Canada's role in the IMF and the World Bank, and so on. I think was a very important role model, both in terms of uh, wanting to get the economics right, but also in terms of uh, the way that a public servant should speak truth to power and provide the, uh, the unadorned policy advice to, to uh, political masters. And, uh, and you know, I think he, he did that incredibly well, you know, becoming Deputy Minister of Finance and then the Governor of the Bank of Canada. In addition to, to David Dodge, I mean, people uh, you know, that I've worked with uh, on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, I think they've been very influential. 
Um, you know, I, as I say, I've been very fortunate to have worked with some excellent people. Uh, economists that are, are uh, really serious about getting the economics right so that they can get the policy right, uh, so that the people of Canada can, can benefit from a good, sound, uh, and stable policy framework. Do you have any favorite books or articles that you would recommend that can really help enlighten either young people or just any recommendations on things to read? Um, in terms of recommended reading, I, I don't want to sound excessively pessimistic, but uh, I think uh, I would recommend a book by uh, the British historian Piers Brendan. It's called The Dark, the Dark Valley. Valley. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and this this is uh, an examination of the uh, the years between the first and second world war, uh, which the context of the book represented a dark valley in the kind of in the progress of, of uh, you know Western civilization. And you know I think the the reason that I would rec recommend that people read it is that you know we are in some sense in a dark valley now. Um, you know you. You see that in the election of Donald Trump as President of the United States, someone who is, you know, I think, quite clearly, you know, a, a populist, nationalist, economic nationalist, you know, responding to uh, to concerns that were really aggravated, the, you know, the problems aggravated by the global financial crisis. Um, but it's not just Donald Trump. You see uh, a return to populism, economic nationalism. And worse, um, you know, you see the rise of fascism in, uh, in uh, a number of countries in Europe. It does have disturbing parallels with the 1930s. Uh, and just as the, uh, as you could say, that the rise of Donald Trump, uh, the, the Brexit vote in the UK, uh, the, the street protests that, you know, we're seeing almost on a weekly basis in Paris, you know, and um, the rise of right-wing parties in France and Germany, uh, of right-wing uh, parties in power in Poland and Hungary, um, you know, kind of the fractious politics in Italy today. I mean, all of those things, I think, weren't necessarily caused by it, but they were certainly, um, I, I think, the global financial crisis and the enormous disruption and the enormous uncertainty that the global financial crisis put into people's lives help or create an environment in which all of these pernicious effects uh, took root and, and grew. So I think if you want to understand what's happening today and what and how this may play out, I think looking to history is always a, always a good idea. I mean, I think it's important not to assume that because something, uh, you know, a series of events followed uh, then, that the same sequence of events must necessarily be followed today. I mean, it's important to learn from history, but not to assume that, you know, that his history uh, necessarily repeats itself, but look at what are, look at the similar similarities, but also uncover what the differences are, and I think that will provide a better understanding of, of what, what lies ahead. So you've had quite the history with your, all your jobs and whatnot. What are your future plans? What do you plan on doing next? Well, I'm, I am in that sweet spot of life, I think. I've, uh, I've retired from the Public Service of Canada. I'm working on some really interesting issues 
uh, involving, uh, as, I, as I mentioned earlier, the kind of the evolution of, of global regulations, uh, you know, uh, for for Scotiabank. Um, but now I'm I'm kind of freed of the day-to-day -day responsibilities of child rearing. All of you, <laughs> all of you girls are you know adults. Ish. Uh, <laughs> and you don't need dad there on a daily basis. Um, clearly, I you, you once once you're a father, you're always a father, and you never you never. Uh, give up those responsibilities, but um, it's more of a on an as-needed, on-demand basis as opposed to uh, a daily basis. So I'm, I'm looking forward to, uh, to continuing to work on, on the, uh, the issues that Scotiabank has me working on, but, but also I maintain uh, an affiliation with uh, the think tanks uh, that, that you mentioned at the outset. And, uh, intend to continue writing and, and thinking about these issues and hopefully bring the experience that I've accumulated over the last 35 years or so in, in international financial economics uh, to bear. And your leisure hobbies and whatnot? Uh, my leisure hobbies, as you know, Michaela, I mm -hmm. love fishing. Uh, fly fishing to be. Fly exact. fishing. Um, so hopefully I will be doing a lot more of that. But also, I, I like working outside uh, at the farm in New Brunswick, and mm -hmm. I plan to spend more time here as well. And just touching briefly on being a father, did you find that hard to balance between work and parenting? No, because I never... Uh, well, no, that's that's being glib. I'm, I, let me start by saying that I... I've always put family ahead, and I remember my father, your papa, mm -hmm. you know, telling me that, you know, that kind of years ago when I was a young man and uh, probably just starting out raising a family, um, you know, that basically uh, you have to make a decision, and you put your family first or your work first. My first duty has always been to, to family, so. If there was ever a conflict, uh, family would it would always be resolved in favor of the family, and I think once you have that mindset, then you know it, it just becomes so much easier because you're never your father. Well, again, I'm being perhaps slightly too too cavalier, but I mean, you, you know, you you don't have to have a, a, a dilemma every time there's you know an issue in terms of work comes up. And of course, uh, as you know, I mean, I've been incredibly fortunate to, to, to have met and married your mother. Yeah, and I was going to say, good partner in crime. Good partner, and, and that, you know, so she has always known that, uh, that I, well, I hope she's always known <laughs> that I put family first, but when I do have to, when I did have to, uh, you know, work long or do business travel, and, and if I had any regrets in my, in my life and as a father. It's that I probably did too much travel and I, and I was away too too much. But um, you know, as I say, with you know, with, with the knowledge that, you know, family is first, you, you don't have that constant uh, struggle internally 
in terms of trying to to balance because they're you, you put the family first and, and you know work work around work. Mm -hmm. Now, of all the places you've traveled, you traveled to some neat places. What's the most memorable trip, perhaps, or the most wonderful place you've seen? Uh, again, I've been incredibly fortunate uh, to have, as you say, traveled uh, quite a bit um, on business and have participated in many interesting discussions uh, you know, around the world. But the most fascinating experience professionally, or the most fascinating business trip that I've had uh, was in the early 1990s. Uh, traveling to the, the Soviet Union, and it was the Soviet Union at the time. It, this was uh, just as Gorbachev was pushing perestroika and then, you know, attempts to liberalize and reform the Soviet Union, um, and you know, quickly became evident uh, that they that, that Moscow had severe, severe economic and financial difficulties, and that there were serious problems, and that. Uh, you know, with a, a country with uh, many thousands nuclear weapons, uh, economic uh, chaos would not would not be beneficial to anyone. And so David Dodge was asked by the G7 uh, to travel to Moscow and meet with uh, senior Soviet leaders uh, and uh, discuss the state of the Soviet economy and and. You know, see what could be done to help facilitate uh, an orderly transition um, that would that would promote kind of the, the reforms that Gorbachev was was promoting. How old were you at this time when you were traveling to the Soviet Union and you you had just moved to Washington D.C.? I would have been early thirties. With the young family. No, before before, before girls were. Yeah. yeah, and fun fact: you can speak. Russian. <laughs> Just a little. Just a little. Used to be fluent. Yeah. Sure. I know what that means. What does that mean? I speak just a little. Oh, very neat. Not a lot. I speak a, not a lot. I know this may be a long-winded question, but I was wondering if you could just touch on the state of economics in the world today, or if you'd just like to focus on Canada and North America, that would be wonderful, too. Just the uh, listeners. On economics or the economies? The economies. The economies. Ah. Uh, well, as I, as I mentioned earlier, I think, you know, we're going through a, 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 a pretty uncertain period. Um, you know, in addition to some of the legacy effects of the global financial crisis, um, you know, which is, I think, uh, a return to economic nationalism in some, in some places, um, and a desire to, to pull back from uh, financial and economic integration that has really uh, characterized the last 70 years. I mean, you know, from the end of the Second World War until um, you know, the onset of the global financial crisis was one, one long period of progressive deepening of ties between countries through trade agreements, uh, the flow of capital. Um, and I think, you know, that has generated enormous benefits uh, around the world. I mean, you look at global poverty, uh, it has never, you know, the, 
this, in, in some respects, this is uh, a golden age in terms of global development. Um, you know, because uh, millions and millions of Chinese peasants, formerly Chinese peasants, have been lifted up uh, into, uh, you know, a higher uh, standard of living. And that has reduced global poverty. Uh, but at the same time, you've seen an increase in inequality within countries. Um, so, for example, in the United States, you see a degree of income inequality that was last seen in the Gilded, gilded Age, you know, of the early 1900s, late 1800s, early 1900s, you know, which, which spawned the progressive movement, um, you know, Teddy Roosevelt and, and others, uh, you know, at that time. So you have this kind of paradox where gold poverty is, this has declined, but inequality uh, within particularly the United States, you know, Kind of the, the, the North Atlantic economy, the, the, the main you know, industrialized economy that dominated the global economy for the last seven years has increased. And that, I think, explains a lot of the movement toward economic nationalism. And I think that's a challenge, that will be a challenge. But there's also enormous challenges, I think, coming from things like climate change. May I just interrupt you right there? Mm -hmm. Can you simplify the term economic nationalism for maybe some of our listeners? Well, I think um, you know. I don't think there. I don't think there is one clear definition of economic nationalism, but it would be something that, along the lines, I think, that would say uh, you know you have to take care of your people first. You have to raise tariff barriers. You have to block, you know, immigration, um, because, you know, on the theory that immigrants come and take, uh, displace uh, native-born workers. So the country so, is very much focused on their own economic well-being. Right, but there's, uh, unfortunately, there is a dark side to it, and you know that that economic nationalism is also in the past, in the 1930s, in the dark valley right. uh, that Piers Brendan writes about. Economic nationalism, nationalism was also married with fascism and authoritarian what, yeah, governments, and I think ask. that is an extremely worrisome uh, trend. And I think that is why I think young people today have to be conscious of, um, you know, glomming on to a you know uh, uh, a particular policy uh, without understanding kind of the potential implications mm -hmm. of that. Um, you know, I think, so, so, you see in the debate in the United States, for example, you see, um, you know, kind of a, a polarization of, of the politics, you know, and the, kind of the progressives, uh, of the progressive Democrats on the one side, and, uh, the, the very nationalist, economic nationalistic, uh, policies of, of right-wing Republicans on the other, and I think the danger not just in the United States, but in, in a lot of the large democracies, again, of the, the North Atlantic economy, um, you, you see that trend of polarization of politics. And I think that is incredibly worrisome because if you have that polarization of politics, you're likely to have a polarization of policies. And if you have, a, if you have polarization of policies, then it would become harder and harder to maintain the economic ties that have been forged so diligently over the last 70 years. 
and the danger then becomes one of the world breaking up into or potentially uh, of you know trading blocks um, um, where you you know the, which could have negative economic consequences to be sure because you lose the benefits of, of uh, you know efficient production and the gains from trade but it could also have very disturbing prospects uh, on the political front um, because you, know, you, you create you know, if there are these trading blocks they you will create trade frictions and trade frictions could uh, spill over into security into the domain of security and, and, and relations, political relationships between countries as well. Is there anything you'd like to tell any of the listeners? I just said, you know, I, I guess the only, um, I, you know, it's hard for it's hard for me to to uh, pontificate and, and give advice, but I, you know, I think looking back, I think it's important that people keep an open mind um, and. You know, in this day and age, I think it's really important that you, you kind of strive for um, fact-based analysis. You know, um, mm -hmm. you know, look, don't trust uh, what you read on social media. I mean, societies function uh, well, or they, 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 on trust. Societies need trust, but uh, do you remember the the trust game I was telling you about? I don't think so. Tit for tat. Oh yeah, right. And you did. You yeah. were talking about that, yeah. and basically the the game summarized that um, we're in a society that no longer requires trust, but people do, or like there's a greater trust. I forget. I can't. Well, it's you can. I think you can think about it in terms of cooperation, um, and I think this is you know kind of a long a long-standing issue in terms of uh, trying to understand society and, and economics. I think it's pretty clear that, you know, societies to function well need trust and you need cooperation between different economic units. But at the same time, you need competition to mm -hmm. ensure, you know, any economist will say competition helps ensure the efficient allocation of resources. Uh, and I think this is kind of a, you know, a constant tension. Uh, and the worry, the worry that I have, you know, with social media is that you know you, you, it, it'll break down, or it has the potential to break down, uh, you know, trust, uh, and replace it with what I think is kind of an artificial concept yeah. of friend. You know, friend me on Facebook. Mm -hmm. um, well, you know, and people brag about having thousands of thousands of friends. Well, if you have thousands and thousands of friends, you don't have any friend. Because you you can't be a friend to thousand you know thousands of people. Quality over quantity. Right. I mean, and, yeah. and you know, I, I think you have to kind of look and and develop. You, you can't develop trust. You know, if 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 you have this these disembodied relationships through social media. So how do you find that balance? Well, I just I I've never gotten into social media. That's for, fair. You know, for for one thing. Um, for people who and, are already invested, say. I, honey, I don't know. Who's been a great influencer in your life, outside of economics? Well, I think my parents. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think they had a, you know, they had a, an amazing relationship. They had an incredible marriage of over 60 years. Mm 
Um, and I think both parents had, were, were grounded in, in kind of love, love. Yeah. and, you know, love and trust uh, and integrity. And I think, you know, that's, those are, those, those things don't change, you know, I mean, mm -hmm. they're not fashions that change from year to year. Those things are the, uh, kind of the thing, the, the bonds that, that keep families together and keep friendships together. Mm -hmm. And I think those are the things that are important. Very important. That makes me happy to hear, actually. Um, well, Dad, thank you so, so much for coming on. It was an absolute pleasure. I, of course, think you're a wonderful father. And although I don't understand all the work you do and have done, I know you're good at your job and um, well-respected. I'd like to wish a happy St. Patrick's Day to all the listeners. It is March 17th, 2019. And before we go, I always like to, well, I'd always like to try and close off with a quote. So is that a quote that you live by or inspires you? Uh, I'm not sure I'd live by it or, um, or whether it inspires me, but I mean, it's, you know, in this age of, uh, you know, so-called fake news and, and uh, you know, political positions that seem very, very entrenched, I'm reminded of what Keynes said, you know, um, when being, being accused of having flip-flopped on a position. Keynes, John Maynard Keynes was a uh, great British economist and uh, statesman and I think helped put in place the, the post-war international architecture of, of institutions that have, I think, done so much to, to create a prosperous global economy. Um, but when accused of making a flip-flop on an issue, uh, Keynes said, when presented with New facts prove me wrong. I change my position. What do you do? Mm. And I think there are today so many people that have adopted a position and uh, rigidly, you know, stuck by it, stick when, by challenged. it when challenged, rather yeah. than at continually asking themselves, or you know, am I right? You know, mm -hmm. is this is this the right position? I think people have to always be ready to change their minds and change their positions. Well, if, you always if facts show otherwise. Yeah, you always tell me and my sisters like question everything, criticize like criticize what needs to be criticized, and have courage in your conviction. Well, thanks again. Thank you, Michaela. <laughs> Pleasure talking with you. Always. Um, the podcast is now available on Apple or on iTunes, which is really exciting. So you can even subscribe to it and get little notifications. Thanks again for listening, if you chose to do so. I assume you have if you're hearing this. And please subscribe if you feel the need to do so. And leave any comments or feedback. I'd love to hear from you or reach out if you have an interesting story you'd like to share. Thanks again. Have a wonderful week, and I will talk to you soon. Peace and love, friends.